Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Now playing on demand is Song of Lahore, which follows a group of Pakistani classical musicians as they travel from their war-torn home to New York City to perform with Wynton Marsalis at Lincoln Center. Also playing on demand is Embrace of the Serpent, the story of the relationship between an Amazonian shaman and last survivor of his people, and two scientists who work together to search the Amazon for a sacred healing plant. The latest independent films are ready when you are, with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Sinker. And I'm Allison Wilmore, and I am freshly returned from the Cannes Film Festival. Here, Matt, I got you some presents. Oh, wow, thank you so much. Yep, here's a Cannes tote bag. Oh, this is so cool. And I know how much you love that pan beignet sandwich. You can only get there, so uh, there's one inside for you. Oh, oh, the smell. Yeah, it's at my bag on the plane for eight hours, ten hours. Ugh. And then it was at my house for the last two days. <coughs> but it's super authentic. Yeah, thanks. And since I'm back from Cannes, we'll be talking about this year's festival and its highlights and lowlights. Matt, Matt, are you okay? Wait, are you actually eating that tuna sandwich? You're an idiot. Hopefully you'll get yourself together quick, because first up this week on the show, we'll review last year's Turkish nominee for Best Foreign Language Film, Mustang. Wild horses couldn't keep me away from this four-day-old tuna fish sandwich. And while I finish it, let's do opening break, the segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, it is your turn to give us our picks. What do we have this time? Well, these are three films that I haven't gotten to see yet, but I'm actually very curious about. The first is The Trust, which is a crime film featuring the very interesting pairing of Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood. Yes, directed by brothers Alex and Ben Brewer, the latest brother directing pair. Cage and Wood play a pair of Las Vegas cops working in evidence who, through their work, learn about a drug dealer's stash of cash and decide to rob him. Matt, I bet it goes seamlessly. You know how these things always do. Yes. Uh, I'm interested in seeing Elijah Wood and what's an unusual role for him. You know, he's uh, been particularly interested in horror as as a grown-up actor, but I think seeing him as a cop, a, a dirty cop, 
That sounds promising to me. So that is The Trust, and it is now available on demand. Just hearing you say that it's uh, from a new brother tandem, someone should advertise their movie. You know, they say, from the studio that brought you, from the filmmaker, they should do... From the same kind of directorial relationship that brought you yes. No Country for Old Men and The <laughs> Matrix. There you go. I mean, that would put some butts in seats. Siblings. Who knew that exactly. they would, you know. Well, also new on demand is Search Party, the directorial debut of Scott Armstrong, screenwriter of Old School, The Hangover 2, Road Trip, in a startling change of pace, it's a contemporization of Eugene O'Neill's Pulitzer Prize winning A Long Day's Journey into Night. Not kidding. Wah, wah. It is a rowdy comedy about a bachelor party, wedding gone wrong, which the groom goes to win back his estranged bride and runs into trouble on the road in Mexico. It does have a great cast. Silicon Valley's Thomas Middleditch and TJ Miller. Happy Endings, Adam Pally. Shannon Woodward from Raising Hope and Alison Brie and Kristen Ritter. Uh, so I think despite the fact that this is actually, uh, I think, sat around for a little bit, I would love to see all of those people in a movie together. So that is Search Party. And finally, also new on demand is Manhattan Night, a neo-noir starring Adrian Brody as a New York crime reporter who meets a glamorous widow, played by Yvonne Strahovski, who wants him to investigate the death of her husband. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a film director, played by Campbell Scott, who has a habit of filming snuff films. Ooh. So, you know, intrigue, snuff films, and a cast that also includes Jennifer Beals, Linda Lavin, and Stephen Burkhoff. Allow it. Yes. So I've heard that, that one is actually pretty good. Yeah, it heard, sounds promising. I heard some good stuff about that one. Yeah, I've been meaning to check that one out myself. It's been a while for Adrian Brody since he's done something that yes, I think well, and, and one of the things I read said that it was like his best performance in a good long while. He seems like he'd be good in a noir. Absolutely. Very trench coat worthy. Yes. All right, well, that is Manhattan Night, and it is also available on demand. Our main review on Filmspotting SVU is chosen by listeners via poll on our website, FilmspottingSVU.com. On our last show, we gave you the options We Are Still Here, the recent and critically acclaimed horror film, Eden, the latest film from Mia Hansen Love, and Mustang, a recent Best Foreign Language Film nominee from Turkey. It lost the Oscar to Son of Saul, but it won the SVU Listener's Choice poll with 40% of the votes. The film was co-written and directed by Denise Gamzi Erguven, and apparently it's based on events from her real life. It follows five sisters who have been orphaned by their parents and now live with their disapproving grandmother and controlling uncle in a remote and deeply conservative village in rural Turkey after an innocent beachside frolic, a phrase that has not been mentioned many times on Filmspotting SVU, uh, with a couple of boys, which become local news, uh, not like local news, like on the news, but just uh, gossip, let's say. The girls are essentially put under house arrest by their guardians who quickly try to turn the sisters into quote-unquote marriage material and find them some husbands and this story of these girls who are controlled and dominated and even abused by men i guess you could say it works on two levels as a narrative and also as a metaphor for the way this society and maybe other societies most societies modern societies treat women and that's definitely something we can talk about probably should talk about but first i want to ask you a question that's probably a little bit nitpicky 
but it bugged me, Allison. Okay. On Amazon Prime, where Mustang is available, where I watched it, the poster, you know, you go to the page and it has a, the poster right there on the page. The poster for the film has the tagline, their spirit would never be broken. My question to you, Allison, is, is that tagline really accurate? Isn't that kind of false advertising in a way? It's funny because I feel like it was made up by someone who had not seen the film. Yeah. Had just kind of seen this poster of these girls that, like looking free with their wild hair, hair yeah. and their kind of loyalty to one another and decided that this was like, uh, I don't know what. That's a tagline that could go on a on a story about like teenage girls and the horses that they're training you know like, <laughs> like it does it sounds like a kind of uplifting cw show about troubled teenage girls right and, and horses yeah it is not that though this is about teenage girls whose trouble largely comes from the outside and i don't know if it's fair to say their spirit doesn't be with like the idea of whether their spirit can be broken or not seems kind of incidental it's mm. about how they are put into this world where their paths are extremely limited mm-hmm. or basically the paths are basically marriage right chosen someone, for them yes to someone they don't know very well probably right yeah so yeah it's a very odd tagline and I, it sells a movie that i think does not resemble the one that right. is actually i mean i wasn't offended or anything but i must say not knowing all that much about the film other than the basic premise and then looking at that page and seeing what it says and then watching the movie i was sort of like boy sure that that really uh, applies to this movie at all i mean i guess it does a little but it's it's slightly misleading it's an odd way to sell it yes so this movie also often gets described as a kind of turkish version of virgin suicides Mm -hmm. what did you think of that comparison i mean virgin suicides is a movie that i don't really remember all that well i haven't seen it in a long time so i mean i could see where the comparison comes from but it wasn't something that i was really focused on because that's not really a movie that I know all that well. What about yourself? Is, is it something that you can't get out of your mind when you're no, watching I th- it? I do think that it feels like a conscious homage mm-hmm. at times, especially with this idea of in Virgin Suicides, you have these five girls who, these five sisters who are in some ways like given a group identity and who are locked up by their parents, their religious parents, you know, and locked away from the world. That does sound like the film we just watched. Absolutely. Yeah. Though in this case, uh, it's a whole larger culture that is keeping them imprisoned. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm wondering, I, I like this film. I like it a lot, but there are parts of, there are times where I hesitate on it, where I feel like I am more interested in the filmmaking and the acting. And she gets some great acting out of uh, girls who are, I, I think only one or one of them was like a professional actress before mm-hmm. this. Uh, I am a little less interested in it as a movie about basically condensing all of these woes of like what could happen to you into like one family. Yeah. There are times where I feel like it tugs very hard uh, in terms of just uh, delivering an almost didactic, you know, it's pretty shameless at times. I don't know. What what did you think of that? I mean, I I thought it was a, a somewhat simple, but very effective film. And you're right. I think that the performances are this, are the, the great strength here. Seeing these young women, I mean, they, they they create a very convincing sort of family unit, and they're believable as sisters and as these sort of wild children, wild in the eyes of these very conservative people, not really all that wild in the grand scheme of things. And you really come to feel a great deal about them and their, you know, their sort of 
they're entrapment by these these authority figures and it, it i mean i think i described it as a tragedy at some point on the show and that you know that's sort of what you're watching here is just this really this you know there's a line at one point where the narrator the youngest of the girls says like this is the last time we were ever together and it you have a feeling of impending doom kind of already before that but that line really just breaks your heart and then you're watching the rest of the movie going oh no what's going to happen and in a way that sort of telegraphs things in a way that could be maybe frustrating to some viewers in that it, it almost is like a self-spoiler. But uh, to me, it was effective because it, it did sort of make me even more kind of melancholic as I was watching the film. Yeah, I think that their relationship is the strongest part of the movie, really. The bond that they have that is this bond of, you know, their... Uh, the growing up in this family in which they're missing some family members and they're largely being raised by, uh, by their grandmother. Right. And they have, you know, this figure in the house that's supposed to be like this authority figure protecting them. And he is over the course of it, like clearly not. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that something else the movie does very well is portray this like incredibly paternalistic, uh, society, without without necessarily just lay like just kind of leaning too hard into that it, i so much of what is done to these girls is done for their quote unquote benefit mm-hmm. you know like so much of how they're locked away is done to protect them sure so much of uh what even like the grandmother does is to make them good marriage material right. because that's what she thinks is the best the best she can do for them right. is to like help them for this. It seems that she has their best interests at heart. Right. And yet is doing like monstrous things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I really like that in the film that it doesn't just it doesn't just make this kind of like this easily demonized thing. I mean, I think they're like there's no arguing that what's done to the girls is terrible, but it's it's much easier to just make that so such a distant idea and stuff yeah. you know and instead to be like the basis of this is is never just being like we hate women and want to lock them up it is that women can't be trusted with these men outside instead of trying to be like why can't men be trusted too yeah i see what you're saying although some of the revelations about the uncle figure i thought maybe worked against what you're saying to some extent sure though i feel like I feel like even part of that comes with if you have a society where you're like men can't be trusted around women, mm-hmm. then in some ways I think that allows a man to be like, I couldn't help myself, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, and I, I think see that that's an like incredible cop out. I mean, like in the is like the big dramatic revelation of the movie, right? right. Uh, that there was abuse going on, mm-hmm. uh, and it's awful. But I, I do think it ties into that. Yeah. You know, but I, there's almost this relinquishing of personal responsibility. Yeah, I see what you're saying. The other thing that sort of confused me, I, I must admit, about the movie is that they're, you know, supposedly the start of the movie, they're so wild and free and kind of allowed to do whatever they want. And I think the grandmother even, even has a line like, I should never should have let you be this, this free. And I was, you know, that was my mistake or something to that effect. And then they become so restrictive. And I just start, sort of was confused how they could sort of oscillate between those two poles so wildly. Like, it seemed to me like, wh- why were they ever allowed to have long hair and frolic with boys? And it just seemed like th- the characters that we see throughout the rest of the movie would never have let them do that. Yeah, I think that that, when the movie feels like it's it's pushing too hard, uh, I think that's one of the things, is that these never seem like girls who 
have grown up in the society. They feel almost like they've been dropped in from the yes. outside. Yes. Uh, they feel more kind of, uh, I don't know, urban. They feel more... Uh, worldly. Worldly, yeah. I agree. And And... I don't think that was necessary in order to like, they're so startled mm-hmm. when after this, like kind of frolicking uh, playing games of chicken in the water, they're told that they're the scandal of the neighborhood. Right. And I feel like when that happens, you're like, were you totally unaware of, of kind of apparently the, like all of the rules and the perception and like, the right. Way, yeah. Seemingly they would be aware of, even if they didn't believe in these things, they would be at least be aware of the potential consequences. Yeah. Um, you know, all of this said, I think the the ways in which the girls start getting married off are fascinating and dark. Yeah. Uh, and I, especially when like one of the girls gets to marry her sweetheart mm-hmm. and is kind of thrilled, yes. you know, but uh, I, I think that the whole process in which like new visitors come and they're made to serve them tea and biscuits and basically shown off. Or even earlier than that, when they're brought into town mm-hmm. and like paraded, paraded around, around just to be like, here they are. Yeah. There. Like the whole kind of process and the, the rituals that are involved, these like kind of rituals that date, you know, long back, but just seem so grim in the context of the reality of these girls' lives. That was one of my favorite sequences was, yeah, there when they're being like prepared for marriage and as you said, like paraded around. There's then they're sort of trained in housework and cooking and all these things. And there's like a great line where I think one of the scenes in that sort of larger montage starts with uh, one of the older women teaching them. And like, here are a few basic principles about soup. And it's like, I, you can't imagine hell any darker than being like trained in the ways of soup for potentially days or weeks. Right. And yet there's that really nice moment in which she shows the youngest girl how to make chewing gum. Yeah. And that. And they're all just kind of, they have this moment together where they all chew this homemade chewing gum. Mm-hmm. I, know, I mean, the film is filled with beats like that that I think are yeah, it, really nicely Yeah, done. it surprises you too. And, and again, just like you said, where one of the girls is, you know, they start getting married off against their will essentially. But one of the girls sort of almost like negotiates her way into marrying the boy that she likes. And that it's not that particular girl's sort of outcome is not quite as sad and despairing as a result so it yeah it does kind of surprise you at certain times yeah and i think that you know there's something to be said for the fact that it is all filtered through the youngest girl like the prepubescent girl right the one who is is like not even part of the conversation of marriage yet and is also like not even part of thinking about that aspect of her life yet and that she is the one who kind of feels most free to push back because she's like why like you know why like right. why are you doing this and why are you so foreign to, to her yeah and i think that the, the movie handles that very well mm-hmm. and she is like a very endearingly kind of prickly <laughs> prickly person uh compared to or uh towards her towards her care uh you know caregivers uh the, another moment that really i thought was quite powerful and and smart as from a filmmaking perspective and i don't want to if you haven't watched it yet i'm not going to really spoil it but towards the end of the movie there is a moment where these these girls have been like literally locked up you know they can't go out they they stop going to school like they're just their whole lives are outside this house are completely ended and so they've just been essentially imprisoned 
And there is a moment towards the end where they essentially turn their own imprisonment as a, into a weapon. Like they sort of lock the other yeah. people out of the house. And just the idea of these girls kind of taking taking control of the situation from these evil authority figures and turning this imprisonment, this vulnerability into like their own strength, I thought was a very like powerful moment and then leading into what we see at the end of the film and there's some you know not super elaborate but nice filmmaking choices there in terms of there's an earlier shot in the movie where of a car going into a tunnel a dark tunnel and at the end of the movie there is a shot of a uh, I don't know if it's the exact same car but a car leaving a tunnel a dark tunnel and sort of coming out into um light after driving through the night and you know these are not this not to the most subtle or you know uh, uh, choices but it it works within the story that they're telling and the emotions they're working with and i i felt those shots you know they resonated with me yeah i think you know i so much of the time that is spent in this movie that is the girls kind of having to entertain themselves i i think that uh the film creates this really nice feeling of like a languid summer except for these girls it never ends mm-hmm. until they're married off and they're stuck uh, you know the kind of boredom of that and the kind of the games that they come up to entertain each- themselves but like that in a way where you're almost going crazy you feel like you know you're so stir crazy I-, I i think that so much of this one was also like kind of uh almost like sunbathed you know there's a lot of of just these like lazy afternoons where their people are like the characters are actually sunbathing or kind of like lolling around in their rooms. And I love the way in which it, it like uses that summer afternoon laziness and turns it around where you're like, when you have nothing else to do, you know, what, Mm. like how kind of cozy can that actually feel? Yeah. It it moves very nicely between dreamlike and nightmarish. It manages to make those two things live together really and it lets time kind of slip away with that same dreaminess Mm -hmm. like it's very difficult to tell how much time has passed that's true yeah i couldn't tell you if you asked me how if it was six weeks or if it was two two months or longer than that it's almost it's like it doesn't matter because they no longer have control when you don't have control over your time anymore keeping track doesn't really make that much like you know that big a difference Mm -hmm. um yeah i think you know I do like I do find aspects of this a little I don't know like I I I find it it maybe tries too hard to channel awareness of and like these kind of issues into into the story and then turns the girls a bit like into having to carry these various issues too much mm-hmm. but I do I really love the filmmaking of this I think that there is something that is very delicate about it uh and she uh that uh there's such a way with, I think, how how these girls interact uh, and the ways in which they have, like, essentially a language unto themselves that their uncle, say, doesn't pick up on at all. Right. You know? Uh, and I think there's something that uh, that can't really be overappreciated. Like, uh, it's not something that you see very often. And it's a first-time filmmaker. I think it's not a great movie, but I think it's definitely a very good debut film. I think it shows a lot of promise, too. Agreed. And I, I think I'm, I'm more interested in seeing her do something that is, I think... I, I mean, in some ways, I think that there is something about this film that 
seems almost calculated to succeed on an international festival circuit. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'll be interested to see now that she has made a name for herself, what what she she does does freed from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, if you haven't seen it yet or you want to watch it again, Mustang is available now on Amazon Prime. Just returned from the Cannes Film Festival. That's partly why we're recording this a little bit late. You're getting it late. Apologies for that. Uh, but it could not be helped because the greatest films of international cinema wait for no man or woman or podcast, Allison. And you were there. You were there the whole time. I was there the whole time. And, and can in general, if you've never been, it's not a festival like a lot of festivals, like a Sundance or Toronto, where the the most important, the biggest movies are all front loaded. And even though the, the the festival continues, you can really kind of cover it by being there for the first weekend. You know, three the to first, five days. Yeah. Five and, days, is usually and that's enough. usually enough. Can. Because of the way it's structured, where they're showing new competition films, like what do they show? Like two a day, right? Yeah, two a day. Uh, there's, uh, you know, I, uh, there's and there usually are so many one... sidebars, yes. and that you really, if you're gonna cover it right, obviously, if you have to leave, you have to leave. But really, you're you, there's usually a reason to stay to the bitter end. Yeah, they can. they do they they make it they do not do anything to make it easy to see all the important right. films early. I think the the Cannes Film Festival people would probably say they're all important films. Mm, Screw you, right? <laughs> so I'm sure if they want to read more of your coverage, they can find that at BuzzFeed.com. But Absolutely. let's let's just touch on a couple of different topics. This is actually what I wanted to hear from Allison. Okay, so let's start with just let's let's do the good news first. What was the best? The best film you saw at Cannes. All right. The best film I saw and the one I was really hoping might win the Palme d'Or is a film called Tony Erdman. It is a terrible title and it has a plot that sounds like it's out of an Adam Sandler movie. So I will say these things first. It's written and directed by Maren Ada, a German filmmaker. Her earlier films, Everyone Else and The Forest for the Trees, are streaming on Fandor. Highly recommended. Uh, But this, I think, is her best yet. It is about a tightly wound executive named Inez, who's played by Sandra Huller, who is visited by her father, uh, Peter Simoncicek, who is a semi-retired music teacher and a prankster. And the visit, which he, he arrives unannounced in Bucharest, which is where she works, goes terribly. Uh, and then he goes home, or he should, except he doesn't. Instead, he shows up at a dinner she's at in costume, in a wig and fake teeth, and introduces himself as Tony Erdman. Mm-hmm. He's a character we've earlier seen him use when playing pranks. Okay. And then he turns up at her, at her work as Tony Erdman. <laughs> and then he turns up at a nightclub she is out at with a co-worker she's dating. And every time she introduces him as like, I don't know, uh, someone, uh, a consultant or something like that, and they have what amounts to some extremely high-pressure improv uh, in which they both push and pull at each other in these, in these environments with all of the people she knows. It is 
maybe the best father-daughter movie I've ever seen. Wow. Yes. It is filled with all of these delicate resentments and negotiations <laughs> and I, I and like pain. I, I think one of the things that Marinata is very good at. It's very Does your funny. dad listen to the podcast by any chance? It's, I mean, do you do you never <laughs> argue with your dad? In fact, uh, actually, this movie is about not is is about not arguing. Uh-huh. This movie is about I would say all of uh, the kind of slight hurts, which is something that I think Marinata is great at. Mm-hmm. If you look at everyone else, which is a, a movie about a couple who are on vacation, right? It is fantastic at all of the kind of small slights that you give the people you love and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And this is is basically a symphony of that. Um, and and is, is really about, I think, the ways in which as a child, you know, you can feel infuriated by getting well-meaning advice from your parent that no longer, that doesn't actually apply to your situation. Uh, it's it's also about uh, in some ways it's about uh, being Germany in the EU uh, and you know she's she's working for this international corporation and uh, that is basically taking advantage of Romania um, and in part it's about her depression that results from that but it's also about her desire to be taken seriously uh, it has a great it has a great set of scenes that are about being a woman in a male dominated workplace and all of the ways in which she tries to establish herself as powerful without coming across as harsh and never quite fits in with her coworkers. It is a movie that I think really contains uh, like so much in sequences that play off as just like, I don't know, prolonged dares between the two characters in which they each like want to see who breaks first. Uh, And it has a scene in which someone sings Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All. And it is both hilarious and I cried. Wow. Um, so Tony Erdman, it's been picked up, I think, by Sony Classics. Sony Classics. Yeah, so that so, has a distributor. Yes, and uh, it's uh, two hours and 42 minutes long. I was looking at that here. Which is uh, actually the same length as another movie, American Honey, uh, by Andrea Arnold, that was also at the festival. It's a very awkward length for a theatrical release, but... It does not feel long at all, uh, I, I think. And uh, if when this comes out in theaters, I highly recommend seeing it. I think it's pretty splendid. Um, so that is Tony Erdman. That okay. was my favorite. Right. Uh, but that one did not win. That was you said you hoped it would win. I, and yeah. it seemed like it was it the was, favorite of was, many, many critics. It, it won the Critics Prize. The critics, yeah, it was definitely the critics' favorite. I think, you know, Screen Daily does uh, Grid. Which yeah. They have a bunch they of like, poll, very prominent a bunch critics, of critics. Yeah, for and each day. Rate and they each had the, competition film. It had the highest average that I think a movie has ever had. Wow. On the grid. So. It, it did get phenomenal reviews. It sounds great. I, I don't think it has a, a release date yet, but I believe Sony has said that they're planning on releasing it before the end of the year. Yeah, so and I think it'll look forward probably to it be later in 2016. Right. I think it'll probably be Germany's entry, uh, Oscar entry mm-hmm. as well. I mm-hmm. hope so. All right. So then, from the highs to the lows, you had your favorite film. What was the what was your least favorite film? Well, this one's easy. It, it is? is. It's Sean Penn's movie, Opus, The Last Face, uh, in which he directs his his then, uh, maybe fiance, I think, they, uh, Charlize Theron, who is a the head of an aid agency and has falls in love 
with a dashing uh, doctor, humanitarian aid doctor, played by Javier Bardem. And it manages to be both a awful romance that also manages, like, it, it's very tempting to read as, like, signs of what, it was, what it's like to date Sean Penn. <laughs> Um, And also just for a movie that is all about characters who are like, you know, devoting their lives to for like helping, helping people in Africa. Uh It is just astonishingly dismissive of like actual African people. (laughs) Like almost none of them have a name when they do have a name, you know, they're about to die. Oh, the movie blends two separate um, kind of like humanitarian crises. Uh, And then it starts off. I not kidding you, Matt. Like there were people were laughing. I heard. Yes, yeah, I was going to ask about this. Text, which is basically, it talks about the life. It's like the you know brutality of the like South Sudan, or and then the Liberian civil war uh, could something like could only be equaled by the brutality of an impossible love between a man (laughs) and a woman. No, and you're like, yeah, I I just like it was it was not good wow it's just it's also it's it's just feels like a, a very astonishing act of ego in a way that from sean penn I get out know. of town and that's the thing is like yes i think from sean penn no one no one would be surprised by that but sean penn's also made like into the wild yeah i was gonna say He's have made. you enjoyed past directorial efforts from yes, sean penn they have never seemed like this like yeah. so kind of lacking in awareness yeah and so self-righteous while also being so kind of narcissistic yeah his movies are usually as a director usually grittier than than that yeah this one has a a, quite a few laugh out loud lines which i was very unfortunate (laughs) when the the subject is as deeply serious as as this one attempts to be yeah yeah it was uh, definitely a wreck and Unfortunately, I think in particular for Charlize Theron, who is an actress I like so much and who has been doing a lot of good things. has been on a real role lately, yeah. Yeah, and in this is just... The role comes to a screeching halt. (laughs) She, yeah. It's it's not her fault, it sounds like, though. It's not her fault. There's, like, really nothing, I think, that can be done. (laughs) And Javier (laughs) Verdam, as well, is, like, playing... I don't even know. Playing Sean Penn? I I kind of feel like he's playing... He's a uh, a stand-in, in a way. He's a stand-in for Sean Penn. And uh, a stand-in for Sean Penn who does things like, at one point, jokingly, like, wind the window up so that Charlize Theron's head is caught in the do- in a moving car. And she has to, like, run alongside the car. And he's laughing. And you're like, that's horrible. And you could kill her. <laughs> it's it's a disaster. But, that's uh, how you get the last face, though, is when it... There you go. No one... Unfortunately, no one ever says the, the title. The title? I kept waiting that for it. That was going to be my next question. It, yeah, it seems like it, it should happen, but no, that mm. it never happens. You do have, at one point, though, Harvey Bradham, like, seeing yet another kind of unnamed African girl die. And he says, you know, I saw you. I saw you and your family. I will never forget you. And you're like terrible frankly sentiment to like have <laughs> you know so i i'm trying to figure out if this one had already you know like already had a distributor or i don't think it does yeah it doesn't look like it does obviously the terrible reviews will not help it's not, i mean usually in this sort of situation this kind of movie someone picks it up because it has 
some very big name actors, you can sell this movie. So I imagine at some point it's going to see the light of day, don't you? Yeah, but I don't think that a larger distributor will pick this up. Sure, which I'm sure is very... what Penn was hoping. Right, it'll be some kind of very small specialty distributor, or maybe I mean it could even go straight to DVD potentially, or straight to streaming. That's happened more and more recently. So, but probably we will see it. I'm sure it'll come out eventually. Is it is it so bad that it's worth seeing? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Now, let's move on to our next subject, which is the the movie that did win the Palme d'Or, which was the new film by the British filmmaker Ken Loach. That's I, Daniel Blake. I, comma, Daniel Blake. You did see this film? I did. And obviously it would not have been your choice for the Palme d'Or because you liked Tony Erdman better. But was this at least a, uh, a worthy recipient in some way? It's a very earnest movie. I mean, unsurprising, it's Ken Loach. Um, it's a very earnest movie that is basically a polemic on behalf of uh, on behalf of like the National Health Service and benefits and, uh, you know, in the age of austerity. It is about mm-hmm. two, uh, like an uh, um, older man and a, a young single mom who both suffer because of the kind of labyrinthine bureaucracy of of the benef- of the kind of benefit system. Right. So I, it's definitely like filled with some real tear jerky moments that are very effective. It's got two very nice performances. I think I, along with many other people in at the festival, were fully in agreement with the point he was trying to make. Uh, that said, it's like, and I find this is the case with Loach for me, um, often it just, he, he tugs so hard at the heartstrings to make his point. And there are things that yeah. happen towards the, in like the final third of the movie that I found just ridiculous. Like, I think they were just, they were so manipulative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I kind of checked out at the last third because mm-hmm. I, I just felt furious at it, frankly. <laughs> Uh, but uh, a lot of other people, for a lot of other people, they thought it was Loach's best film in years. Mm-hmm. I was surprised that it won, but the jury is always totally unpredictable. And I think that this is a movie that's so, so very earnest and kind of so very heartfelt in its messaging right. that, that I think carried it through. And that has that can happen at, at Cannes. Is the, the, sometimes the message can win even more than the filmmaking or the the movie necessarily. I mean, the movie matters, but a lot of times if it's a message that the the jury wants to send a message perhaps by picking a movie that has a message that has happened before and I'm sure it will continue to happen in the future. All right. Our next subject, a favorite performance from the festival. Uh, I would say my favorite performance was one at the very last day of the festival. And Ooh. this year at the festival, there were a lot. It was it was a festival very heavy with female lead roles mm-hmm. and really interesting ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my favorite was Isabelle Huppert in Elle. Ooh. This would be the new film from Paul Verhoeven, mm-hmm. who hasn't really made a new feature since uh, Black Book, I think, which is a decade ago. He yeah. made like, this little one in between that was like about an hour long. I just watched it. It's not terrible. Yeah, but it's not like it's, it's not like oh, a feature on like on the level of his other we don't want to get too sidetracked but it was this thing called tricked where it was released here as like half of a making of documentary about the movie and then like the finished product and the and this sort of hook was that it was almost like a crowdsourced script right and the finished product it was only like 50 minutes it was actually pretty good given the circumstances under which it was made the problem was that the making of was just very bland and boring it's like in a world where project Greenlight and the chair exist 
nothing really interesting happens in that first half. So you, no. it, it just overall wasn't all that great. So, yeah, this is a, sort of his first real feature-length movie in, in a, a while. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, it, this and this was a movie that has uh, a premise that I would say is pretty inflammatory and is one that will launch a thousand think pieces when it oh does boy. eventually come out. But it is, uh, Isabel Pierre plays Michelle, who is a CEO of a video game company and like almost like hilariously, a hilariously cool customer. She is really delightful in this role. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a kind of classic Uper role, but also she's just so much fun. But the premise is it starts with her uh, her rape. She is being sexually assaulted by a man who has broken into her house with a ski mask on. And the movie can be described as a rape-revenge movie, but it's really a character study about this woman who just doesn't ever, like, is kind of like almost unruffleable. And always just says what's on her mind. Uh, it's really such a pleasure. I think the movie can't quite pull off everything. It, it's attempting something of extremely high difficulty with what it does, with what unfolds after the assault. But uh, Uper like pulls it through. She pulls it together. Uh, it's it's you know I, I don't think she needs any extra praise. She's had a career that has showed off uh, some a pretty incredible talents and range, but she's so much fun in this movie. And and when you hear that, she's not always someone that you think of as fun. She's mm. very fun in L. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I'm glad that Paul Verhoeven is back in our lives. Let's. I, I think let's close things out now with sort of a, a topic that was bubbling around the festival. It involves certain movies. It involves certain filmmakers as well, I guess. And I guess it comes up, it seems to come up now every year or every couple of years. And that is the topic of the reception of the movies at Cannes, in particular the sometimes vocal reception of critics in particular. And that pertains specifically to booing. You mentioned that at the, the Sean Penn movie, people were laughing out loud right off the bat with this uh with that sort of opening text crawl. Now maybe that's an uh an unusual example because that movie sounds really bad and it would probably be laughed and cat called anywhere it was debuted. But the can press core is sort of notorious for vocalizing their opinion. It's not enough to just watch the movie and to write a review or to tweet about it. One must loudly like instantaneously when the movie is over like announce whether this was a masterpiece or a, a, or a, a piece of, of garbage by either cheering or booing. And I've been to Cannes, and I've witnessed it myself, and there have been times where I necess- didn't necessarily boo myself but agreed with the booing, and there were other times where I felt like, well, this was a really good movie. I don't understand why people are booing. But the, people are now not only reporting the reactions but also kind of like weighing in in the age of the hot take on whether it's appropriate to be doing that. Allison, do you have an opinion about that, first of all? I love it. You love, love when the people boo. Well, I love that people react vocally. Yes. You know, I feel like we always write about the booing, but the fact is that people like cheer and clap at the end of movies as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, basically every movie, unless it is so kind of like middling, gets either applause or boos. And the boos don't happen that often. And mm-hmm. the boos are usually mixed. I should also point out that since this is never, not always made clear when people report on this, this is at the press screenings. Talent is not there. It is not like, uh, 
you know, Jim Jarmusch stands up and everyone's like... Starts throwing mm. tomatoes and yeah, things. No. exactly. Uh, it is at press screenings. It's only press there. Um, and yeah, I think what it does is usually give me... And as you said, like sometimes it's movie. It's a movie that I really like. I think what it does is just kind of give me a sense of like the feel of the room at that moment, mm-hmm. and whether people were with it right. or not. Uh, it's it's and it's all sometimes very, it's, it's not that hard sometimes to predict. A lot of times, if a movie is weird or strange, yeah. people boo whether it's exciting or not. You know, sure. like you might be it might be a challenging film. A lot of times, a challenging film is exceptional and exciting. And then you'll hear a smattering of booze at the end of it at can. Right. And uh, sometimes it'll be even more complicated than that. Like I right. remember like leaving youth last year, which is a movie I like. Not everyone does, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's a movie that you would consider necessarily boo worthy. No. And I was getting booed by a bunch of Italian journalists because of how complicated their relationship with Paolo Sorrentino is. Okay. You know, I, and, and things like that come up where you're like, you can't even guess why people are booing. Right. Uh, that said this year, uh, some of the movies that got booed, Personal Shopper, mm-hmm. the highly anticipated Olivia Ayasayas film starring Kristen Stewart, uh, got booed. It doesn't surprise me at all. I kind of thought it would get booed from the beginning because it is a, an odd movie. It's still not one I'm really sure if I like or not, but it tries to do something interesting in combining a bit of like what Kristen Stewart does in her last movie with Asayas, Clouds of Sils Maria, which is to play someone who works for a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so, and all of the weirdness of that. And it combines that with a sometimes legitimately very scary ghost story. And uh, I, I do not think even at its better moments, the movie entirely pulls together, but it tries some really intriguing things. Uh, and it's weird enough that definitely it got booed. Uh, surprising one that I heard some booze during the new Darden movie, uh, the unknown girl, I, one of their weaker movies, I would say, I don't know why people were booing though. Other than that, if they set the standards so high, right, they that, were disappointed perhaps <laughs> that it was disappointing. Yeah. You know, I mean, was that one, I mean, the personal shopper, that sounds like a classic can boo movie it because it's weird. Can, yeah. It's challenging. It's not formulaic. Yes. It's strange. It's surreal, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. The Dardenne is like, it, none of those like, things sound like the no, Dardenne's to me. It was me. like a kind of classic Dardenne movie. I think just like a clumsier one. Uh-huh. And maybe that's why. So maybe people were yeah. just disappointed because they were looking forward to it. Perhaps right. there can be different levels of booze. And then, uh, rather notoriously, apparently, uh, when they were announcing the prizes, um, which are done in the, the Debussy Theater, in the press room, which is a somewhere else entirely, uh, where the press were watching on a TV, they were like... Sort of like simulcast on yes. a TV in the press room. Right. Uh, when Xavier Dolan won the Grand Prix for his movie, It's Only the End of the World, there were some boos in the press room because that movie was not very liked. I don't, honestly, I don't understand how you can expect people, tell people how to behave in a press room that's just journalists watching amongst themselves. That seems as appropriate to me as telling people on Twitter during the Oscars to not say, to be nice, say something nice or don't say anything at all. Right. You know, like everyone's obviously like deeply invested in the movies that they like or don't like and have been there for two weeks watching them. Mm -hmm. So when something like Dolan, Dolan's movie, which was this extremely shrill family drama, um, with a very good cast that I don't think is shown to very good light when someone like that wins. And then Dolan has a very kind of pugnacious relationship with critics and has been like striking back at critics who have been given his movie bad reviews. I don't think it's surprising that people boo him down. 
but it's not like he could hear it. <laughs> right. You know? All uh, right. Very briefly. Yes. Just to wrap up. I mean, you were there. This, you've been a bunch of times. I don't know. How, how many years have you been to Cannes? I don't know. I mean, it must be six, but not all in a row. Okay. Good. A good one of your more uh, favorite trips to Cannes? A better trip to Cannes? A weaker year? Yeah. A stronger year? No, it was a very good year. Okay. I think that it started off very strong. The second half was maybe not as strong, though filled with a lot of lesser movies from very good filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But it was overall like a really surprising year. And I, I want to give a quick shout out to two movies that surprised me that I didn't expect okay. anything of. Hell or High Water, which is a new movie from David McKenzie, who did uh, Starred Up. Right. Is a, which a, we talked about on this show. Yes. Is a Western heist movie, kind of. Set, it, it's set in uh, West Texas. And uh, Chris Pine and Ben Foster, Jeff Bridges, is such a pleasure. It is maybe the most in, like purely enjoyable movie I saw. And it's coming out soon in theaters. So if that one looks like a throwaway Western to you from the advertising, it's a really good time. And then Raw, a movie that was in Critics Week, which is one of the parallel programs, is a freshman year hazing veterinary school cannibalism movie. Oh, another one of those. Yeah, uh, directorial debut, female filmmaker, great lead actress, and just like, uh, just like I think a really smart movie tying together like the idea of freshman year self discovery. With a, you know, subconsuming of human flesh. Oh, as oh happens. Uh, I don't know if that has distribution yet, but that will be a Fantastic Fest favorite. <laughs> uh, so that's raw. Keep an eye out for that all right. one. And just now, very, very briefly, I just want yay or nay. I'm sure we will have time to talk about all of these movies in the future. Okay. So um, this is almost like to tease a future episode, all potentially. Right. Bring it on. Okay, so the new Jeff Nichols movie, Loving, yay or nay? Yay, and like clearly going to be an Oscar, like... Oscar contender. Yes. All right. The new Jim Jarmusch movie, Patterson, yay or nay? Yay. I liked it a lot. Okay. The new Asghar Farhadi movie, The Salesman, yay or nay? Yay. They're not as good as some of his last. Okay. And finally, the new Nicholas winning Refn movie, The Neon Demon, yay or nay? Oh, conflicted. Ooh. (laughs) TBD. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about all those movies in the future. Allison, even though you have just returned from Cannes, somehow you just you're just so good at your job. You've already uh, seen both of the big releases of this week. I've seen one of them. You're doing better than me, even though I have spent the entire <laughs> last week in in uh, in this country. So I'm ashamed and embarrassed. But uh, we're going to talk about both of these movies now, very quickly before we get to behind the eight ball. First up, the new X Men movie, X Men: Colon Apocalypse. I don't, I, I don't know what to say here. I mean, it's an X-Men movie. I mean, I'm, I'm the comic book nerd here, so I'm, I, I, I almost, I'm curious to hear your reaction first before I give mine. All right. I will say of this franchise, my yes. favorites are the first two. Yes. I like X-Men and X-Men sure, 2. Both of course. directed by Brian Singer, who's returning for this. This one. Uh, I, I feel like I've been less interested in the, uh, I don't know what to call it. The, 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 prequels, the prequels or the earlier younger cast. Yes, just because they felt a lot more overstuffed. Mm-hmm. And then this movie is like the definition of overstuffed. It yes. feels like everyone is either stuck, like Magneto is literally just running through the same damn thing he's done, I feel like, the last few movies. It, there are so many so many characters who who basically show up and do one thing and get nothing resembling an arc or character mm-hmm. development. Yeah. And there are not even that many, like, cool-looking mutant things. Mm. There's not even that much time to do that because uh, there's, it's so busy. And it, it also has an incredibly underwhelming villain. 
Oh, yeah. It's such a disappointment. And Oscar Isaac, who is so good, and then is just so wasted. Oscar Isaac, I mean, very quickly becoming one of my very favorite actors. He's so great in everything. Even in Star Wars, he's got, you know, he showed this whole other side in Star Wars. You're like, oh, he's not only is he a great actor, he's incredibly handsome and charming. He is our generation's Han Solo. He can do anything. And then right after that, where do we see him next? Well, we don't see him because he's drowning in makeup and, and, and latex and armor and talking like this. And then also plays a bad guy. I... I can't even really describe his evil plan, but he spends a lot, like a kind of embarrassing his amount of time. His evil plan is to bore people to death by monologuing about the end of the world. Right, but also, I mean, he spends like an embarrassing amount of time for like a supervillain, like doing his like assembling ensembles. people, yeah, as- assembling them and then doing their like hair and giving makeup. them makeovers. Yeah, yeah, it's mutant makeover. It's true, he does, and for and for a character who is so powerful, he literally has like every mutant power. It seems unnecessary, and. Please do not write me an email explaining that this is what he does in the comics. I've read the comics. I know that this is what Apocalypse does. He always has his horsemen. But these horsemen seem particularly pointless and unnecessary and useless to his plans. And I I was pretty disappointed because I actually – I mean I thought First Class was okay. I really liked the last one, Days of Future Past. I thought that was a lot of fun. To me, that was like the most – x-men comic-y of the x-men movies in a good way this one while it does have a lot of characters and a lot of powers you said it does feel very familiar and old hat you know like it you know nightcrawler who in x2 had this showcase sequence where you were like wow it blew you away in this one he's just like a guy in the background who is there mostly to teleport them when they need him to like what was before this like almost like Something we had literally never seen on screen before has just become very old hat and rote. There wasn't a lot in this one that surprised me in a pleasurable way. Even the best sequence, which involves Quicksilver, is basically just a rehash of of a great sequence from the last one. I know. It makes me sad because I feel like Brian Singer had such a good feel for not just the kind of like awesome mutant power scene, but also like those touches of characterization like nightcrawler and his faith and like you know in those in back in those first movies it actually made a little impact whereas he's not anything in this new movie yeah and i agree i mean i think fassbender is actually pretty good with what he has to do but you're right it, it does feel a lot like he's just kind of treading water and and Jennifer Lawrence, you know, it's funny because I feel like they beefed up her character. and So actually, much, like and very unnaturally. Unnaturally, and sort of done, did something that the comics have almost really never done to that character in a way that I thought was kind of interesting, but it's still so superfluous with so many characters. It's just, it's a disappointment. All right. That said, it sounds like, based on what I've heard, Allison, that even though X-Men Apocalypse is a middling disappointment, that may make it, uh, by a large margin, the best film of the week, because the other big release is Alice Through the Looking Glass. Yeah, it's very bad. Now, I strongly disliked the first movie. Will I strongly dislike this one more or at about the same level? So I will say, like, the first movie, which I was not particularly fond of either, at least was, like, a movie. This one barely feels like... <laughs> I mean, the plot that it has... The plot that when you're like, wait, that's what it's about? It's I. It's basically, like... The Mad Hatter is sad. Mm, he's and now the Sad Hatter. He's the Sad Hatter. And she's called back to help him. Of and course. then has to do this whole thing involving going back in time. The stakes feel like so meaningless. The only noteworthy thing in it is that Sasha Baron Cohen 
is in this movie as time, the embodiment of time as yeah. like a person. And is basically doing a Werner Herzog impression. <laughs> and that is like the only thing that is interesting about this movie is that he just is swaggering around talking like Werner Herzog. Is, is, does he have a large part? Yes. Oh, he does. Okay. Oh, yes. So if you want to see Sasha Baron Cohen as Werner Herzog, there's there's that at least. Yeah. I mean, don't get too excited about I it. I mean, the thing to me was it was like it, the first movie, while I did not like it at all, I mean, at least it was like, well, this is a Tim Burton movie. Like here it's now a Tim Burton sequel that someone else is just kind of like aping his style. The guy that did the Muppets, James Bobbin, is the director of this. It just <laughs> seems so bizarre to me. Like. I, I mean, I know why they made it. The move, first movie made a, literally a billion dollars, but it's just it just seems I know so pointless. It, it feels unasked for. When you watch it, you feel like no one seems very clear as to why they're there. Which was least least essential this year? Alice Through the Looking Glass or The Huntsman Winter's War? Alice. Wow. Because The Huntsman at least has like fun bits of weirdness and it has Charlize there. Charlize being kooky. Yeah. There's no one who's that fun in this. Oh, wow. That's and, bad. And you have Johnny Depp, which I think oh, is a, yeah. you know, can weigh it's you beyond down. beyond help at this point. All right. Well, there you go. Let's get to Behind the Eight Ball now. We count down three new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then we give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. Uh, Allison, who's going first this time? Why don't you go first? Okay, then. I will go first. All right. Well, then give me three new releases. All right. First up available on Hulu is the mockumentary Incident at Loch Ness in which the real Werner Herzog, not Sasha Baron Cohen, plays himself leading an intrepid crew of filmmakers to find the real Loch Ness Monster, I guess also playing itself. The film is not directed by Herzog. He is just the star of the film. But if you're a fan of his work and particularly of Herzog, the persona, sometimes comedic persona, I think you'll get a big kick out of this movie. That's Incident at Loch Ness available on Hulu. Next up on Netflix, starting on June 1st, is Cold in July, the crime film from director Jim Mickle, who first got my attention with the indie horror film Stakeland. This is not a horror film, more of a, I guess, a crime film, a noir film. It's based on a book by Joe Lansdale, and it stars Dexter's Michael C. Hall as a man who is targeted for revenge by the father of a man he killed in self-defense. Uh, it's a nice little indie thriller, has some interesting twists that I have not spoiled for you, and it's well-directed by Jim Mickle, a guy who I, I, I hope keeps making movies. I like, I like his stuff. That's Cold in July, available on Netflix on June 1st. And finally, I wanted to give a little more love to a fairly new-ish streaming site we've mentioned on the show before, Shout Factory TV. That's the free ad-supported streaming site of the cult and genre Blu-ray distributor Shout Factory. One of the features on their site is called VHS Vault, where they present exploitation movies of the past as they would have appeared on VHS. Pan and scanned and grainy and muddy looking and looking like crap. And if you're a kid who grew up watching movies this way, or God help me, you're so young, you never got a chance to experience movies this way, it's a really cool and unique feature. They just unveiled what they call VHS Vault 2, like a second wave of titles that includes Kentucky Fried Movie, the John Landis and Zucker's early sketch comedy film, and BMX Bandits, which stars a very young Nicole Kidman. So you can check those and more titles out at ShoutFactoryTV.com. All right, two listener recommendations. First up, we have an email here from Julie Casey, who writes, Hi, Matt and Allison, love your podcast. You asked and... 
you, meaning me in this case, asked why the great British baking show is worth watching. So I thought their number one fan should email to tell you why I've just completed watching the first season on Netflix for the third time. The third time. The reason it is so good is that it is just so lovely in a way only the British can do. I'm a busy mom, wife, and nurse, and watching this show brings me much calm, smiles, and joy. The way it is structured, you can watch 15 to 20 minutes at a time, so it's a perfect way to relax while doing things like waiting for the school bus to drop off my kids, waiting for sports practice to end while eating my lunch at work, at night before going to bed, etc., etc. The way Netflix works, I can switch devices, and I always know where I am on the show. It's amazing. I can't wait for the next season, which just ended on British TV, to drop. It's just so lovely, and that is from Julie Casey. Uh, thank you, Julia. Now I'm more inv- – you know, I said I had added it to my my list just because I had seen people talking about it and didn't really know why I had added it, and I hadn't watched it yet. But now I'm, I'm more persuaded to take a look, so thank you to Julie. Our next email comes from Andrew Willis in Indiana who writes, Matt and Allison, I recently had a minor surgery performed on my broken foot. It is healing very well. We are glad to hear that. And as a result, I am restricted to two full weeks on the couch with my foot suspended above my heart. I took this time to consume as many movies as possible. I am currently halfway through this rehab period, and most of what I have watched has been through streaming services, mainly because getting up and down to put discs in a player is a real hassle. So far, I have watched 35 movies in the past week. Wow. I won't bore you by listing all the titles, but I am keeping track on Letterboxd. If you're interested, I will attach the link, and we'll give that to you at the bottom. Uh, These are my favorites so far. The Train, directed by John Frankenheimer and starring Burt Lancaster. It is a World War II movie set as the Germans are leaving France. The Germans are trying to steal famous paintings, and Burt Lancaster is a resistance member trying to stop them. She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's debut feature about an independent woman in Brooklyn who is dating three men at the same time. The film is smart, sexy, provocative, and shows the beginnings of what Spike became as a filmmaker. I am also looking forward to watching CQ by Roman Coppola, The Tenant by Roman Polanski, The Atomic Cafe, which I understand is a collection of nuclear attack warning films from back in the 50s. I am watching all of these films on a service I was only barely aware of before this week and is becoming a regular source of entertainment for me. That service is Tubi TV. It's a free service, but it plays commercials during the run of the movie. A lot of commercials, but it is free, and they have a great selection of movies that I couldn't find streaming anywhere else. If you want to read up on the rest of Andrew's rehabilitation viewing, his letterbox page is letterbox.com slash walktheearth. And he says, love the show. That's from Andrew in Indiana. Thank you for the email, Andrew. All right. And one from your mileage. You gave me number 16. And right now that is BoJack Horseman, the Netflix original animated series. And actually, I had started watching this and was really liking it. I only got through about four or five episodes. I was watching it right as my daughter started to realize there was television on. And so I had to basically stop watching it because the only time I had to watch TV was when I was sort of keeping an eye on her or feeding her or watching her late at night. And all of a sudden she started, her eyes started drifting. And I realized maybe this is not the thing I want my, you know, then like three month old daughter to be the first thing that she remembers from television is this sitcom about a beloved horse of a 90s sitcom from, you know, decades earlier and what he's doing today washed up in, in Hollywood. So I haven't gotten around to completing it, but I actually would like to maybe in 18 years when she's out of the house, I'll be able to finish the series because I was really enjoying it so far. BoJack Horseman. 
Well, 18 years later, I hope you enjoy it. Yes, maybe by that point it'll already it'll be like rebooted in the way things are going. There'll be the the Netflix revival of the original Netflix series will be on at that point. All right, Allison, are you ready to go with your countdown I here? Am. All right, let's start with three new titles on streaming. Okay, first up new to Netflix is the latest Netflix original series, Lady Dynamite. Uh, which stars Maria Bamford, the great comedian and singular personality, loosely based on her life in which she goes back to, goes back to Los Angeles after spending six months uh, recovering from, for her bipolar disorder and tries to kind of start again uh, in, in show business. And it's got a great cast, uh, including Fred Malamed as her agent, who's, who's hilarious, and a lot of other com- comedians that you will recognize stopping by. I've only watched a few episodes of it. It is very odd in a way that I really like. Um, so that's Lady Dynamite. It's on Netflix. New to YouTube via the Paramount Vault is The Way Home, South Korean film from Lee Jong-hyang, about a seven-year-old city kid who is sent to live with his mute grandmother in the country while his mother looks for work back home. Uh, he is awful to her in all of the ways that a seven-year-old who is angry about separate, being separated from everything he knows and being brought out to the country will be, and she loves him and makes sacrifices for him that will then tear your heart into. Uh, so it's very effective, weepy, the way home on YouTube. And finally, new to 2B TV is Bloody Sunday. Um, this is the Paul Greengrass film that uh, actually got, got him to be brought on to direct The Bourne Supremacy and then The Bourne Ultimatum and now the upcoming Jason Bourne. Um, but it's about the 1972 Bloody Sunday shootings and got Greengrass a lot of acclaim. So you can find that for free on 2B TV. A lot of a lot of 2B talk on SVU this time. All right, how about two listener recommendations? All right, well, first up, we have one from Jill, who writes, I watched Hate Ship, Love Ship on Netflix last night and thought it was great. Quietly great. It's based on Hate Ship, Friendship, Courtship, Love Ship, a book of short stories by Alice Munro. And if you've ever read any Alice Munro, you'll know how close in tone the movie is to her sad and surprising universe. Kristen Wiig, in a serious low-key role, except for one funny scene she shares with a mirror, plays the main character. It also stars Guy Pearce, who's wonderful, Nick Nolte, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Haley Steinfeld. The movie walks a wobbly line between hopeless and hopeful. It's always surprising, unless you've read the story it's based on, which I hadn't. I had low expectations and no previous knowledge of the story or the film, so that helped. So that is Hate Ship, Love Ship on Netflix. Thank you, Jill. And we have a listener's recommendation from Pam, who writes, Did you guys ever toss up Happy Valley on Netflix for a listener's pick? It's one of the best cop crime dramas available right now. I'm hoping that Happy Valley does for Sarah Lancashire what Prime Suspect did for Helen Mirren. She's beyond brilliant in this show. I've hunted down and watched a lot of her earlier UK TV stuff. And unfortunately, like Meryl Streep, she's easily the best thing in So So Fair. Might be fun to have a listener's choice between Happy Valley, Broadchurch, and The Fall. That's actually a very good idea. As much as I love Olivia Colman and Gillian Anderson, Lancashire's work in Happy Valley is a cut above anything on TV right now. Um, thank you for that, Pam. I'm a big fan of this show, too. It's definitely worth checking out. Two seasons now uh, on Netflix, Happy Valley. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number And You gave me number 13, which is Arabian Nights, Volume 1, The Restless One. Mm. Yes, it is actually the first of a three-part drama 
film, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Sprawling epic trilogy. Triptych. Triptych sounds good. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by Miguel Gomez, uh, set in modern day Portugal, but uh, or set in Portugal, but drawing from the 1001 Nights. It was at Cannes last year in Critics Week. I heard many good things about it. I've actually watched some of them before, but I really want to go back and try again in like when I'm able to not get interrupted. Maybe someday I will. But for now, they are on my my list. Maybe someday. All right. Now, let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. We have three TV options this time. I am very intrigued to see what wins this time. Allison, you have our first option. What is it? It's one that I just described. It is Lady Dynamite, the Maria Bamford, very strange uh, sitcom-ish show. Uh, Spinoff from Black Dynamite. Not quite, but okay. that would have been interesting, nope. too. Never mind. It's got some some odd stuff in there anyway. Okay. That would be totally appropriately fitting. Very well. Uh, and, I, you know, as far as com- like dramedies based on a comedian's real life, mm-hmm. which it's its own category now that's very popular. Yes. This is definitely the most distinctive one. Interesting. <laughs> it is... You've watched a little, as you I've said. I haven't little. watched any of it yet. Yes. I don't have time to watch. I haven't watched. I haven't finished Bojack Horseman. I can't start Lady Dynamite. Right. So Unless it Unless wins. Unless it wins. Exactly. That's go. what I was going to say, is that this would give me a good excuse to check this one out. Yeah. So, uh, and it's one I've been liking so far. So that is our option number one. It is streaming on Netflix. Okay. Option number two is available now on Amazon Prime. It's also an HBO show, so you could conceivably watch it on HBO Go or HBO Now if you have any of those services. It is the first and only season of Lucky Louie. Now, everyone knows Louis C.K.'s uh, most recent, well, now not his most recent, his previous show, Louie, on FX, which was a big critical hit. And uh, he just recently had Horace and Pete, which we had as a listener's choice option that didn't win a while back. But before all of that sort of critical acclaim and, and Louis C.K. kind of becoming this internet darling, essentially, of of that kind of uh, autobiographical comedy that you were talking about. He had this one season of this very peculiar show on HBO where it was sort of a blend of his kind of style of comedy, but also the classic multi-camera sitcom with an audience or a laugh track, and it's shot on one set, basically. And the show was definitely not as well-received in its day as Louis was, but... I thought it would be interesting perhaps to go back and look at it now, now that Louis C.K. does have all this critical cachet and isn't just like, oh, that guy who made Pootie Tang. Like now he is a huge force in the world of comedy and television. Yeah. And not just that, but also in terms of like creating kind of singular auteurist TV Absolutely, content. absolutely. So I thought with that lens, it might be interesting. I never watched Lucky Louie. So I haven't either. Yeah, so I thought it would be a very appropriate time to go back and watch it. That's Lucky Louie, the first and only season, which you can watch on Amazon Prime or on any of HBO's streaming services. You know, sometimes a comedian who's not like a beloved alt-comedy figure like Louis C.K. or Maria Bamford wants to get in on that sweet autobiographical comedy action. Who could you be talking about here? I could be talking about Rob Schneider. What? I know. Uh, You know, Rob Schneider, uh, I don't know what he's... (laughs) I don't know how to finish that sentence. How to describe him. You know, Rob Schneider. Uh, Rob Schneider, you may or may not remember, had a CBS show called Rob. 
Maybe. Exclamation point Exclamation on both points. sides. Yes. Uh, loosely based on his life and his marriage. Uh, it was on CBS for one season. Yeah, it was like your traditional kind of like hokey looking sitcom. I presume it Rob, was taken off the air because it was too good for broadcast TV. Good. Rob Schneider, though, was like, you know, I was like, this did not represent me. And it's not my vision. And he went and funded his own version of, of basically that same idea called Real Rob. Uh, same basic premise. Same basic premise. He stars in it. His real life wife, Patricia, stars in it and their daughter, Miranda, and is based on his life. Uh, but also, I guess, kind of got a Curb Your Enthusiasm vibe to it. Um, and then he sold it to Netflix. It is eight episodes. It is uh, the Netflix original that I feel like no one talks about. It I went did up... not know it existed until you brought it to my attention. Yeah, it, it went up in December. Yeah. And, and there you go. You know, I, I feel like it has not gotten particularly well-received. I'll just say that right now. But also... There is something interesting about the very idea that not everyone, by, by creating like a personal project like this, not everyone finds the magic formula. And maybe no one wants to see uh, deep into Rob Schneider's soul and his life. Somebody does, because guess what? The series has already been renewed for a second season. Fast. We got to get in on the ground floor, Allison. All right. Well, so that is your third choice. Real Rob. All right. That is on Netflix. <sighs> wow. Well, which TV show should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or just enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 30th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, at FilmSpottingSVU, and you'll have all that week to watch the TV show and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be up on or around Tuesday, June 7th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies or TV series we discuss on the episode. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore, and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice and where we share plenty more streaming suggestions throughout the week new to various services so um if you've got some uh reply to us and we will we will happily share them for film spotting svu i'm allison wilmore and i'm matt singer thanks for listening <laughs>